I'm originally from Sydney, Australia, where I was raised by an agnostic family. And my mother became a Christian when I was around 16 years of age. As a young 13, 14 year old, you know, I was woke before woke was woke. Um, if people don't know what woke means, a kind of social justice warrior type discourse that we now have. I was really just before that wave. And in Sydney, Australia, you know, has the second largest gay and lesbian population in the world. And that whole conversation of gay marriage was really starting to reach a fever pitch. So I was this young 14 year old processing my own personal sexuality and my own craving for spirituality in a conservative Anglican school. Remember my uncle making, uh, you know, my Christian uncles making homophobic co comments and saying things about homosexuality that were really disparaging and then knowing internally that that was me. And so I think one of the things people often don't understand is that a lot of whole gay identity complex is often driven by self-rejection, by this message that you're unlovable and that you're kind of the refuge, refuse on a waste heap, you know, and that God has allowed you to have these desires, you never chose them, and then he rejects you for them and condemns you and, you know, sends you to hell. So what I was reacting to wasn't actually the real Christian gospel, but it's what I thought it was. And I suppose I was under the law, if you want to use kind of Christian language to describe it. I couldn't understand the gospel of grace. And I didn't have the deep theology of creation, full redemption, or any of that. It was just that God hated me and condemns me for it. So when I was a 15-year-old, I was in a park, uh, and I'd come out as gay, and I met this Russian Orthodox boyfriend. And he had he used to wear this amber cross that I used to hate, because like, why would you wear a symbol of our oppression as gay people on you, you know? on you, like, why wouldn't you, you know? And he said, well, I, my, my faith's important to me. And then one day we were in a park and he just decided to give me this cross. And I went on some huge diatribe about how oppressive Paul was and look what he says about women, look what he says about homosexuality. You know, I knew what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 said, I knew what Romans 1 said, I knew what Leviticus 18 said. And so it was all about that. And I'd never really been given an access point to the love of God in all that kind of Christian education. In fact, it kind of turned me against Jesus and Christianity. But I always liked Jesus, and that was what was so interesting. But I always felt like, you know, that I cannot be part of that. I am disqualified from it. So anyway, he gives me this cross, and he kind of kissed me to kind of shut me up. <laughs> and just like, just take the cross, and it's a gift, you know, and I love you and whatever. And so it's really fascinating to me that I look back at this encounter, you know, with him, and he's saying to me, you know, in a gay relationship, trying to kind of almost give me faith. It was just really fascinating, now that I look back at it, and almost prophetic, that he gave me this cross. As he'd done that, and we'd had that moment together, a man had seen us on the road, and that we'd been kind of kissing, and he pulled up in the park and took a large stone and, from one of the garden beds and kind of proceeded to throw it against my back. So I just remember this thud and this kind of searing moment where I was just filled with rage. And I thought, actually, you know what, it must be this cross. So I had these kinds of like 
experiences of homophobia and I just thought it must be Christianity, Judeo-Christian religion that caused that hatred. Because why else would you hate someone who is just trying to love another person? You know, it's actually self-rejection. That's the thing that alienates us from God because we can't receive the love of God. And I think for me, that's what it was really about, is that I was rejecting myself. And I thought in order to, re to reject my self-rejection, <laughs> I needed to become a radical gay activist and reject those re who rejected me to be free. What I didn't understand in going towards radical self-disclosure as a gay person, what I was really doing was still being controlled by self-rejection. And so I think that helps us understand why <laughs> is a gay community railing against the church. It's because they feel deeply rejected by us. And there's been fascinating, you know, statistical data on this in the US. 70% of the people who'd left the church asked them, why, you know, gay people, why did you leave? And there were these things, the theology of marriage, you know, what the Bible says, etc., and said, a lack of love. And 90% of them just ticked a lack of love. So it wasn't all those other things. <laughs> It wasn't the truth of the scriptures or what Christianity actually said. It's that they had no access point to Jesus, to the love of God in those churches, and that alienated them. And I think I had that going on in me in a, on a deep level. But it's just fascinating that I think actually Jesus was there with me in that moment of experiencing homophobia, that the cross was in my hand. And it was like Jesus was saying, I took those stones for you. But I was so under the law of sin and death that the cross actually spelt condemnation to me and rejection. So it was a long journey to get to the point where I actually understood the cross truly. But I wore that amber cross all the way through from that moment to just before I met Jesus when I was 19 years of age. So there were two main ways in which I think the access point came. One of them is through the Holy Spirit, Jesus working in us, even when we don't know him. And so I remember after a long string of boyfriends and trying to find kind of meaning, I said, you know, I'm just gonna be single for a year. So I was in a club in central Sydney on Oxford Street, which is the gay quarter of kind of Sydney. And that night I had the question, what is love? And it was really actually haunting me, this question, because I was just sick of hearing about love. And I'd been studying a lot of postmodern philosophy, and there was a lot of, you know, Derrida and other places, there was a lot of talk about love in Jean-Paul Sartre and, like, these other people that I'd really loved, Simone de Beauvoir. I was, like, always talking about love, but never any definition. I just found I was frustrated because I, like, I don't actually know what love is. <laughs> uh, so I wonder if anyone in this room knows. And so I was kind of secretly hoping, as naff as the question was, to get a good response but I got what is love baby don't hurt me you know multiple times and I just remember being so frustrated in the cab home I said that's it I'm done I'm done with the secular thing I'm not going back and so there was a real moment I think of my own almost conviction that the world didn't lead to life and that love wasn't really known in that space and that was really important because I think it created an openness to God and it's mysterious, why did I have that realization at that point? I can only really put that down to the Holy Spirit. So the second part of it for me was the body of Christ. And I think this is a harder part for the gay community because there's not many people 
that have the boldness to just kind of go up to a gay person and say, God loves you. And I'd had this debate with my uncle um, at the Christmas lunch table about absolute truth. And he was a kind of, fun, in my eyes, this fu fundamentalist, Pentecostal, you know, cultural enemy that was conservative and all of these things. And so, you know, I didn't want to hear what anything he had to say about God. He'd said to me, well, if you say there's no absolute truth, that is an absolute truth. And you've just communicated that with language, so you've just doubly contradicted yourself. And so I think, like, I did need a little bit of an intellectual challenge as well. I think that was actually God's grace to me to really think about what I'd been taught at university. I just attached total trust to that and thought that is what's true without ever really questioning it. So having that challenge from him in a kind of loving way, but a very strong way in front of the whole family, you know, was actually, while I was furious on the surface, actually deep down was grateful. And so that always strikes me as important and something that often the church is afraid to do. So actually say, no, here is the truth and the truth will set you free, you know? He was in the car with my aunt after this whole thing and he said, you know, I've got a word from God that David's gonna be saved in three months time. Like, God's just gonna come into his life and he'll be a Christian. And, you know, my aunt was just completely bowled away. She's like, did you just see his reaction to what you said? There's no way he's becoming a Christian. He's like, no, in three months time, I'm very sure the Lord will save him. So I was in a pub in central Sydney um, and I had six options, different parties to go to. I had this really intense sense, I have to go to this particular party. And there was a girl there who's a filmmaker and she'd got her film into the largest short film competition in the world. And I was just kind of drawn to her and just had this sense about her that was different. I wanted to get an interview with her and write an article. And so we started talking. I said, well, how did you get your film into the largest short film competition in the world? And she said, well, it was, do you want to know the real answer? I said, of course. And she said, well, it was God. So there I was exactly three months later, as my uncle had said in the car to my aunt, with this girl telling me that it's God who had opened the door for this film. And this film was about disabled people and I'd, I had an uncle that's disabled. And so there was this kind of instant connection. And I, I brought up my sexuality straight away and I said, look, I've read the Bible. I'm, just, I'm not interested in your God, in Jesus, you know. And she said, I can understand how hard it might be for you, but have you experienced the love of God? Because if you haven't experienced the love of God, you can't understand this part of yourself, any part of yourself. You have to actually know the love of God. Like it's not an option, David, you know, like this, to understand Christianity, to understand the gospel, Jesus, you have to experience the love of God. And no one had ever offered me the simple kind of prayer experience of his love. And I think for me, it was really important that I could just know God directly, that there was no hierarchy, that there was no person standing in the way judging me, that there was no, like I could have instant access to the Holy of Holies, the, the love of God, the like intimate heart of who he was. I think that was just so profoundly important, being gay. I think it is for all of us, but particularly when you've experienced that alienation and that self-rejection, to just have this like unconditional offer of the love of God. So she started to kind of have this charismatic experience as she's telling me this and she's just like, whoa, God, 
God really loves you. And I'd never seen anyone do anything like this. I was like super intrigued by a Christian having a spiritual experience. Like what? <laughs> so I was instantly you know, drawn into this thinking, this is what I've you know, almost been looking for my whole life. And, um, and she said, you know, I, I, I want to pray for you. And I said, look, I'm a good agnostic. I don't think anything's going to happen, but you can pray for me. Good luck kind of thing. So she launches into the Christian prayer of the century in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. You know, all the Christianese you can imagine. Book of Revelation is just <laughs> being quoted everywhere. Uh, you know, and often people talk about evangelistic sensitivity. I didn't need that. I just needed, like, the real deal. <laughs> you know? Someone to actually really pray for me and intercede powerfully with faith. And that's what she did. And as she did that, I kind of went into this cocoon bubble kairos moment where time stopped and I could feel this like hovering over my body like kind of like you know like a bird's wings flapping or I don't know how to describe it it was like a wind you know hovering and in the genesis it talks about the spirit over the waters it's as if I was about to be kind of recreated (laughs) and there was this voice that said to me do you want me and I I just stopped me in my tracks. This voice, like what this voice said, went right to the heart of who I was. And what I really desired was this mutuality of being known. And the first question that Jesus asks in the, the Gospel of John is, What do you want? And God asked me, Do you want me? Because he knew that what I really wanted was him. And I think. This is something we don't understand is sexuality is a superficial layer of who we are compared to how much we're created for this intimate union with God. It's, it's nothing actually compared to that when you know it. <laughs> Even though it's super important, I do not want to... And I think this super, very important part of my testimony is this encounter where he went to that deeper place and touched me there and said, do you want me? So I heard this voice three times and I said yes. And as I said yes to, to God, I felt it was like someone pouring a vial of oil over my head. And my friends actually brought me the psalm, you know, I've anointed my servant David with my sacred oil. And that almost like sacred oil of Jesus, of the anointed one was like poured over me. And it was like, in that moment, I knew this is what I'm created for. Like, this is what will truly satisfy me. And it was just the most incredible experience. You know, almost like just served up to me by God with no condition. (laughs) It was absolutely amazing. And then this voice said, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and savior? And at that point, I think the word kind of Lord, I wasn't sure about that word. And I felt this kind of tug of war over my soul and I, I just remember saying, well, I never want to choose darkness. I would always choose light. Of course I'd say yes. So I said yes. And then my mind said to me, you know, almost like, you're crazy, you're a gay activist. Why are you saying yes to God? This is not, like, you cannot do this. You know, so it was such a fascinating encounter with God. And then I got home and my mum was waiting up and she'd heard about this word from my uncle that I'd be saved in three months' time. It was March, so three months after the Christmas lunch debate with my uncle and she asked me as I got home 
is everything okay? And I knew I had to eat my words because I'd said to my mother, you have to choose between the delusion in your head and your real son standing right in front of you. So make your choice. And she said to me, well, I don't have to make that choice. And I think that's a really fascinating response from her. And I actually think it's really important for the church to understand you don't have to make that choice between the gay community and the gospel. And that's a false choice. That when we embrace the gospel, we embrace all people. And the gospel will touch and ransom and bring in people from all nations. And that includes people that have a different embodiment or desire or sexual orientation. God's spirit is for those people. And I think that's so important in my experience that God's spirit did that and adopted me into the kingdom of God. And the church, we're so diverse, we're so different. We don't look like each other. You know, we have radically different experiences, but the Holy Spirit is the one who holds us together. And he did that, you know, through years in this church that for me, and that's where I really fell in love with God. And yeah, he just transformed my life. But the question of my sexuality wasn't answered. It was something I kept putting to the side, it's just too painful, too hard, too much. And I just wanted to enjoy God and what I'd received. And I remember the Lord saying to me, just practice my royal law. That's all I want you to do. Love me and love others as I've loved you and as you love yourself and just do that. So that's what I did for three years. And as I did that, I was transformed. You know, more more transformation was happening in my life and more revelation was being given to me so I could suddenly start to understand the story of the Bible, the story of God's relationship to humanity, what the gospel meant on deeper levels. And finally, I just got to this point where I knew that male and female, that marriage between a man and a woman wasn't about some archaic ethic that was thought upon me to oppress me, but it was about something sacred within God's identity as creator. That he set up male and female and marriage and all of this to reflect an even greater reality that I wasn't excluded from. So sure, even if he created us male and female in the beginning, and that's still good and that still has moral importance for how we understand our sexuality now in the doctrine of marriage, there was this future eschatological reality that that marriage pointed to that was greater and more important than than it and I was part of that in Christ so even if I couldn't easily relate to marriage or go and have my gay marriage I could be part of what marriage pointed to which is actually the greater marriage of heaven and earth of Jesus in the church and so suddenly that didn't matter as much because yeah sure I might be excluded from one of God's created goods, but I was part of a much greater good that eclipsed even the most beautiful created good. But it does did require a moment of the cross, a moment of like self-death, where I was willing to give my sexuality to God. And that was actually in Strasbourg, France, where I'd come to do my exchange year in my degree at university. It was the third year into my faith. And I remember saying to God, you know, I want to go and have a boyfriend. I'm in France, like, this is the dream. So, like, you better show up and show me or I'm going to go do that. You, you know, and God said, well, I want to show you what the dream looks like from my angle. I want to give you what my version of the dream is. And so 
on my, around my birthday, I felt the Holy Spirit prompt me in saying, I'm going to send you a book to kind of answer the question for you. And so this one package came during my birthday, nothing else. It was this book, Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill, and I read that. And that was about, you know, the celibate gay Christian who had wrestled with his sexuality and decided, I'm going to give myself to God in celibacy. And he wrote in such a way that didn't make celibacy look like this oppressive thing, but actually this incredibly beautiful path that was Jesus, Jesus saturated, that Jesus was celibate and that he was the greatest example of human flourishing. And that suddenly I almost felt myself being delivered from the idol of romantic love that so much of the church and so much of secular society had worshipped. And I felt the Holy Spirit as I was reading that book, I had this encounter with him where he said, I want you to give me your homosexuality. And I just had gotten to this point where I was like, well, anything in my life, if you want my money, if you want, you know, my, if you want to take my life and I leave the earth, like whatever it is, like you can, t you can do it, Lord. Like you have total jurisdiction over me. So yeah, you can have my homosexuality. I think I had to get to that point where I trusted God enough to give him something that sacred and important to me. And so I remember this kind of holy exchange where I just gave him my homosexuality and then he filled my body from the top of my head to the tips of my toes with resurrection power. And I could suddenly be celibate. But then of course I ended up in bed with a French man <laughs> three weeks later. And I think it's really important that when God does something, our human weakness isn't just eradicated. Sometimes it's intensified so that God can actually make our weakness his strength, you know, perfect his strength in our weakness. And I think that's something we don't get as Christians enough with this question. We think it's all about being strong. I'm gonna go be celibate. That's not Christian celibacy. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this utterly weak, you cannot do it. You give yourself to God and he does it in you. And you often fall, but never fatally, only to show you that it's him in us doing it, bringing forth this fruit of righteousness. And so I had to learn that. I got this, this psalm in my head. Though I make my bed in the depths of the earth, you are still there. Where can I flee from your presence? You know, and that just was this sense of I'm with you even in the dark, difficult, weaker moments. And suddenly I was different. It's as if I couldn't do that anymore. I had actually been internally changed. And so I stopped and I said, I, I can't do this. Like, Jesus is my life and I've given my whole life to Jesus. And many years later, we met up and we talked about that moment. He said, it's the only time I've ever thought Jesus was real. And I've, it's, it's kind of like constantly come up in my mind. And I kind of have this interest in faith now that I would never have had. And I know it's real for you. Because you couldn't have done that unless it was real. But God brings us through into righteousness that does end up fulfilling the law. I think that's the whole beauty of Jesus, that he fulfilled the law on our behalf. And if you're gay listening to this, he fulfilled the law for you. You don't have to do that. You just have to be the weak <laughs> vessel that gives him what makes it difficult for you to fulfill the law and he will do it in you. And that is actually a radical difference. It's really important to understand that there's bad celibacy and good celibacy, just like there's bad marriage and good marriage. It, that 
just because celibacy can fail and just because marriage can fail doesn't mean that it's bad. <laughs> and I think Christian celibacy is very different to what often people associate it with. It looks like Jesus, and I think that's the thing. And actually, in the future kingdom of heaven, we are not going to be married. We're going to have more like a state that's like celibacy. So in a way, you're practicing heaven on earth. You're kind of bringing that future reality now in celibacy alongside marriage, which points towards it. And people say, but I'm gay, I want to be married. But what people don't understand is that marriage is tethered to the creation of male and female and is defined by that. And so desire has to be fulfilled differently when you're gay or same-sex attracted, which makes friendship incredibly important. It actually puts friendship back in the center of the church instead of marriage. And that friendship is also the foundation of a good marriage. <laughs> but friendship being actually our heavenly existence, we're all going to be these incredible friends in heaven. So trying to understand what friendship looks like. But in Isaiah 56, there's this amazing passage, 600 years odd before Jesus comes. Do not let the eunuch say, someone who's not married, <laughs> I'm a dried up tree. For to the eunuchs who obey my commands and live according to my Sabbaths, I will give within my walls, my house, a name and a monument better than that of sons and daughters, a name that shall not be cut off, an eternal name. In Revelation, it talks about these holy virgins that have never been with anyone. And it says that they will be given a sacred name. And that I believe this name is the name of Jesus, that there is a special intimacy that we are able to have with Jesus because he went through being a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom that's actually better than being married. As amazing as marriage is and as amazing as having kids is and all of this, it pay, there's actually an incredible intimacy that we're given through this vocation. So I'd really say, don't just shrug that off. Don't just think, oh, this is some oppressive, repressive thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a special intimacy with Jesus that we're able to have in that particular way that the fall has affected us. You can find out about all of this at revoice.us, at livingout.org. Um, there's another blog called spiritualfriendship.org. There's lots, thousands of Christians like me across the earth. I'm actually quite big. <laughs> You'll be surprised, I'm surprised, that there are many of us that who are actually following Jesus in this way and trying to be those eunuchs who have that name that is better than sons and daughters. When I get before Jesus at the end of it all and I'm before his throne, I know I'm going to be so grateful that I had the grace enough to live this way and not to live that way. And I just know that deeply. And I think our lives have to be about that moment where he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And there will be an explanation. There will be a relief where he will finally explain <laughs> why we've been given these desires and have had to go through this. But I know the incredible glory and intimacy that we will have when we're faithful with these deeply personal things before Jesus is gonna be amazing. And it's just not worth compromising. I'd love to pray about, you know, potential opportunity to come back and to continue this conversation. Father God, thank you so much 
For this church, thank you for its history. Thank you that you have poured out your spirit, that you have brought many people to salvation and a radical knowledge of your grace in this place. We just thank you that heaven has met earth in Christ in this church. And thank you, Lord, that I have had the privilege and honor to share my story and this teaching, God. I pray that it would be fruitful, that it would challenge in the right places and build up in the right places and Lord, that people don't feel like it's something that's put over their heads, but something that's come to meet them and to enrich them and to take them forward in their journey. Lord, I pray that whatever I've said, Lord, that it be tested by fire, tested by your spirit, and what is of you would go forward in, in just enriching people's lives. Thank you, Lord, that you have taught me by the anointing, which is trustworthy and true. I pray that same anointing be upon this church to teach what is true and what will lead to even greater understanding of your grace and your gospel. Um, and thank you that you give us a spirit of revelation and wisdom in the knowledge of Christ. And I pray that through this video, Lord, you would pour that out on this church. And Lord, I look forward to future relationships and meeting various members of this church. I pray all of these things in your name. Amen.